Welcome to Now Appalachia. The Appalachian region covers 13 states in the U.S. and over 25 million people call the region home. This podcast profiles the authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their creative work. And now, here's your host, author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. And hello, friends, and we welcome you once again to another episode of Now Appalachia, heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, as we continue to profile the outstanding authors and publishers with connections to the Appalachian region and how Appalachia identifies and connects with their work. I am your host, Elliot Parker, and it's great to have you with us. And we have another outstanding Appalachian author with us today to talk to us about his two collection of two collections, rather, of short stories. Uh, One of them is called Gabriel's Songbook. The other, his most recent collection, is called A Twilight Reel. The author's name is Michael Cody, and Michael Cody is currently a a literature professor. He teaches in the Department of Literature and Language at East Tennessee State University. He grew up in Madison County, North Carolina, and he lives with his wife, Lisa, currently in Jonesboro, Tennessee. And we're going to talk to him about his two collections of short stories, Gabriel's Songbook and a Twilight Reel. So, Michael, welcome to Now Appalachia. So good to have you here. All right. It's good to be here, Elliot. Thank you very much. So in doing a little research about you before we started our interview today, I learned something interesting about you, and I think it frames a lot of what we see and read about in your story collection, and that is you began singing in a band in the 1970s uh, while you were uh, still in high school in Madison County where where you grew up. Tell us a little bit about that experience, uh, what you did and where you went, and and how some of that has kind of carried over into some of the stories that we read about in your collections. All right, uh, yeah, we I was uh, I was in the, a group called the Whitewater Band, uh, and it was uh, just a a chicken house band, uh, not a garage band. We we practiced in a in an old commercial chicken house uh, that we cleaned up uh, that belonged to the family of the of the bass player and I was in the band from I think the ninth grade um, up until the summer between the 11th uh, and 12th so we were you know just the the typical band uh, cover band back in those days we did a lot of Doobie Brothers and Kiss and and various things um, and uh, played a lot of dances locally we played a lot of proms uh, we did a little bit of traveling uh, from you know Myrtle Beach to Chattanooga, uh, Tennessee, and um, it was a, it was an interesting experience. Uh, got me in a little bit of trouble from time to time uh, with uh, with my parents, especially coming in way too late uh, when I wasn't supposed to, and uh, that sort of thing. But you know you can go through getting your car keys taken away for a month or so. Uh, do it all for the music, right? So that was the that was the thing. So it was a, it was fun to be uh, a little a uh, little bit of a high school celebrity, singing in the band, and that's where I started writing songs was for the for the Whitewater Band. And you've had some pretty famous uh, artists, I think, pick up and record some of your music. Can you tell us a little bit about that too? Yeah, I had a couple of couple of good successes uh, when I was uh, when I was twenty twenty one. Uh, I moved to Nashville. To write songs and was uh, unfortunate or fortunate enough. I, I, I guess I have to say at this point, fortunate enough to have uh, publishers who who were 
they thought I was going to be the the star, right? So they let me write whatever I wanted to write, uh, which was which was uh, a lot of fun, but it didn't really ingratiate me to the the Nashville songwriting market that well. But I did have a couple of successes. Um, Glenn Campbell recorded uh, one song. Uh, Gary Morris uh, recorded a couple, uh, and uh, and, a, and a few other uh, smaller artists. But those are those are the two biggest names, I guess, who recorded uh, songs. One of them, uh, one of the Gary Morris songs called The Jaws of Modern Romance, actually landed on the the top 100 country music chart, even though it wasn't a very, very much of a country song. It landed on there in the uh, the late 80s. Um, so that was that was fun. And I got to I got to see it play. It performed on Johnny Carson and um, on the Nashville network and even got to play guitar on it. So that was, uh, that was, it was a great, great way to spend my twenties. I'll say that. Fantastic. Fantastic. It's just a fascinating part of your story that I found uh, so interesting. And I know this carries over into Gabriel's songbook. I misspoke a moment ago. I said it was a collection of stories. It's actually a novel. So my apologies. Uh, for that. Uh, but uh, you know, Gabriel's songbook is really an interesting story because it, it, it kind of talks about this this younger singer songwriter that's trying to break into to the country music scene. And one of the things I loved about this book is that it is the setting. Um, and, and you've created a, a, a town or, or kind of brought back a town called. Um, I, 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 tell me if I'm pronouncing this correctly. Is it our union? Runyon. Runyon. OK. Runyon. Runyon. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's it, it's sort of a sawmill settlement we learn uh, as as we as we get into the story. So tell us a little bit about about your your protagonist in that story uh, in that novel and and why you decided to bring Runyon back kind of from from the uh, uh, almost like from a ghost town back into a, a vibrant town as the setting for your novel. Okay, um, well let let me begin with Runyon. Uh, Runyon was a, a town, as you said, a, a sawmill town. Uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, it was owned by, I think, uh, a family uh, who uh, had come down from Pennsylvania. And it was, a, it was a fairly substantial town on the French Broad River in Madison County. Uh, but then, you know, when things fell apart uh, in, uh, in 1929 or 30, uh, they shut down the, the sawmill. And, and the town, which was built around the sawmill, just disappeared. Um, it was, as I was growing up in Madison County during the 60s, 70s, uh, there were still some structures there, uh, some wooden structures, which have since kind of all uh, collapsed uh, and rotted, but there's still uh, concrete foundations of the mill and, and probably the owners of the house, uh, the, the owner's houses, I should say. Uh, their chimneys and foundations, uh, looking out over the French Broad River. So when I was looking for a place that I wanted to set my fiction, uh, you know, my own uh, sort of little postage stamp, like Faulkner said uh, about Oxford, um, trying to find a place, think of a place like that, Runyon came to mind. I, I was somewhat familiar with it. And, and with it, I was able to... Uh, to bring in my favorite and possibly least favorite parts about the three small towns that are the sort of the characteristic places in Madison County, which is a, a town called Mars Hill, which has the, the Mars Hill University, um, the, the county seat of Marshall, and then 
uh, this other uh, community that's uh, connected with the Appalachian Trail and a lot of river rafting called Hot Springs. And so I was able to to sort of meld and melt those together uh, and, and create Runyon, uh, which seemed to uh, to give me a nice a nice uh, character uh, to build on. Right. So so Gabriel Gabriel Tanner grows up in Runyon. Uh, he grows up playing music. Uh, I, I like to say uh, that that the that in its bones the novel is is. Is, is rather autobiographical, but it's, it's flesh and blood is, is fiction. And in fact, when I was finished with it, when I, when I finally finished it, I was surprised at how much uh, was fiction, because I was thinking it was, it was too, too close to, to my life. But, uh, but it is mostly fiction. Anyway, Gabriel grows up there. He has influences uh, of, of sort of traditional mountain music and, and early country and western music, but he's a rock and roller. Uh, and but he but he the influences are are music with heart right and so when he goes to Nashville and this is in the 1980s so it's Nashville in its sort of urban cowboy phase right so there was a lot and 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 the rise of you know MTV in the rock world and CMT country music television uh, in in the local Nashville scene and, and, and becoming much more, um, a lot of a driven, you know, image-driven business. Uh, and Gabriel, uh, for one, doesn't fit into that kind of image, nor does he uh, really want to. Uh, and so, so the trajectory of the story is, is his uh, leaving Runyon, going to Nashville with great hopes, uh, and then encountering all the, the difficulties that, and conflicts that make a novel a novel. Absolutely, absolutely, and and I was I was thinking about when I was thinking about that he kind of takes that that he uh, the sort of the hero's journey uh, storyline where it, where he leaves home goes to the to the big city seeking opportunity comes back, uh, but he has kind of a very I think Appalachian experience that a lot of us have you know we we if we're from Appalachia at any part you know sometimes we have opportunities to go away and sometimes we're surprised uh, with what we find when we get outside of Appalachia and sometimes that drives people home and and even if it doesn't people always still have an affinity I think for for Appalachia if they're from here you know the uh, the, the the community and the town and the place that they grew up in and, and he kind of mirrors that in a lot of ways um, uh, when he goes and, and sees that as you were saying Nashville is so image obsessed even in the 1980s everything's about image and what you portray and what people assume about you and and he just doesn't seem to make ever really get comfortable with that right and and I think um, Elliot he, he is uh, you know he's in love with music and and uh, one thing I, I think that I discovered is that there are lots of people in love with music in Nashville uh, but there are ultimately the reality is uh, uh, a love of the music business is where you know where the success lies and and he did not love the business uh, the music business and so uh, it was a it was a chance to kind of explore uh, in the novel number one a love story which is which is fairly similar to uh, uh, to my own and uh, my wife and and uh, and then the music story uh, as well 
Again, we're speaking with Michael Cody here on this episode of Now Appalachia. We're talking to him about his two books, his novel Gabriel's Songbook, and also his latest collection of stories called A Twilight Reel. And so, Michael, we'll sort of shift away from Gabriel's Songbook and talk a little bit about A Twilight Reel now, because I love these 12-length stories. I just thought you have a, a terrific set of characters. I like how some of them pop up in several of the stories, and, and we're never quite finished with them uh, as we get through. But um, again... We're back in Runyon, and you set the story in the year 1999. And I was going to ask you uh, about that, and and what was it about 1999 that made that year particularly interesting for you in terms of putting all these stories in, in a certain time period? Uh, when when the stories started coming together, the the earliest ones that were written, uh, which were probably uh, the first story, The Wine of Astonishment. Uh, the third story, Overwinter, um, and, and and I think maybe, um, um, I think maybe uh, what was the uh, a poster of Marilyn Monroe? Those are those are some early ones, and and I, I began to notice this sort of conflict, um, and it's something that I've noticed in my life growing up in Appalachia in Madison County. You know, the, a lot of influx of people moving in. Uh, from various areas because they're attracted to Asheville, they're attracted to the mountains uh, for for retirement or just for a, a different kind of life than they've had in whatever place they might have come from, Florida or Atlanta or somewhere. Um, and so I, I, I could feel the conflict uh, around me of, you know, the, the sort of traditional life, nervous about what's coming in, uh, and the, the, the new influx of people nervous about what they're coming into, right? Uh, and, and so there was just a lot of this, uh, a lot of this tension that seemed to be uh, kind of pervasive through the 1980s uh, and, uh, and into the 90s, uh, and some in the 70s as well. But the reason I picked 1999 was it was, you know, it, as we all know, those of us who lived, uh, lived, uh, in that year, you know, there was a lot of tension, a lot of anxiety about what was going to happen, you know, on New Year's Eve, uh, at midnight on New Year's Eve uh, in 1999. And um, and so I, I felt like, you know, initially they weren't all set in the same year. But then when I sort of hit on this idea of, of the tensions of transition within the community, the tensions of transition in time from... Uh, from one millennium to the next, right? Uh, it just seemed to to fit very well to to locate everything in that that year. Excellent. I, yeah, I thought it was a perfect time because so many of these characters are are kind of living with a little bit of that angst that I can remember. You know, 1999, we're heading into to a new millennium, the 21st century, and not knowing sort of you know, where we were going to go and what was going to happen and how we all were going to, to, to manage that. And I want to ask you about a couple stories that, that stood out to me. And one of the things I liked about all of your stories is that all of your characters have such, such very deep and complex uh, psychological capability. And I don't know if capability is the right word, but, 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 but these, these are deep thinking, um, uh, passionate, uh, reasoned people that we come across, as broken and as challenged as they are. And I want to ask you about, about two stories in particular. One was called Conversion that I really liked. Mm -hmm. And this is a story that uh, 
uh, very much connected, very a lot of Appalachian flavor here. We have an evangelical mi uh, minister who is uh, the pastor of the church, and he decides one day that he's going to take all the church's money and a parishioner's wife and mm -hmm. head off and leave. And the, you know, you kind of describe in that story how the church is sort of left to pick up the pieces, but but then there's a twist. There's a twist because somebody somebody comes along and offers uh, uh, a group comes along to offer them a way out of their financial predicament. But it, it's got such a unique twist and, and kind of the fallout from that. Who who comes and purchases that? Uh, who comes and makes the purchase that tries to help them out? And kind of what's the church's reaction when that happens? Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah, that was a that was a fun story, and, and it was one of the last stories. Uh, there was initially, I, I think of the stories in terms of the calendar. So this is the June story. Uh, it's kind of set up by the May story. There's a we see some of the characters there uh, as well. But but in conversion, the idea for it began uh, with uh, my drive home from East Tennessee State University out into the the country. Um, in that. Uh, there was a, a group of, of the local uh, Muslim organization built a mosque basically uh, on the edge of a cow pasture uh, uh, here on the drive home. So, so you, had the, you had the mosque going up between the cow pasture and the, and the Willow Springs Park where my wife and I walk. And I thought, hmm, man, that's going to be... That's going to be some trouble there, it seems like. Uh, and, and so I was intrigued by that. One of my colleagues here in the Department of uh, Literature and Language uh, is Muslim and, and attends that mosque. So I started, started looking into and thinking about, you know, how would a community react to that? Uh, and and uh, so, so when the pastor takes off with the money, the bank forecloses on their you know their building loan and right and takes the building back uh, the Muslim uh, community of Western North Carolina uh, you know picks up the building they they buy it from the bank uh, to establish their own uh, a place for their community they say you know there are a lot of at one point they say to the protesters uh, there are a lot of Muslims in these mountains and not all of them are interested in 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 going to Asheville, you know, for the for their worship, so so this is uh, this becomes kind of the the local county uh, uh, mosque, right? So so that's where the attention starts. They're they're doing a conversion. They're converting the the uh, the the church into into their mosque, and two groups of the of the church members show up. One one group. Uh, more fundamentalist uh, than the other, uh, maybe more uh, a little more radicalized than the other, and there's a there's a confrontation that that takes place in a very you know sort of set piece right in front of the church, uh, with a couple of uh, uh, couple of characters watching on from across the street. Uh, so it was a it was a fun story to write. I had my uh, I asked my colleague here in the department, Yusuf El Hindi, to to read it and help me make sure I got things accurately. And in fact, there's a there's a little snippet of Muslim text uh, in the in the in the book, and Yusuf helped me uh, of Arabic text, I should say. Um, and Yusuf helped me with that, but he he said he was nervous reading it because he kept feeling somebody was going to get shot, um, which 
I won't say whether they did or not, but uh, anyway. Excellent. Yeah, well, that was a great story, and and I love the twist, and I love how the fact that, that that these church, these evangelical church parishioners, suddenly have to deal with a whole set of circumstances that they had not anticipated. Not just the fact that the church doesn't have any money, but the fact that the building's been purchased by a, a different group of a different faith, which I've just found, right. I found so fascinating. And I found something again that a lot of Appalachian communities are are dealing with as 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 time moves on. I'm, I want to ask you, uh, you know, several of your stories also uh, examine um, homophobia that kind of exists in Runyon. And one story that I love that it literally just had me, you know, almost in tears was the invisible world around them. And this chronicles and talks about a character named Mark Fredericks, who comes home, comes back to Runyon to tell his parents that he's gay and he's also dying of AIDS. And when I got to that point as the reader, I thought, oh, my, this is going to go, this can go one of many different ways uh, for the reaction that his family was going to give. Um, and his father, Gene, uh, is really dealing with a couple. He kind of handles it two different ways. He's got his own feelings about the matter, but he's also kind of concerned about what people in Runyon are going to think uh, about this fact. So can you talk a little bit about that and kind of the, the relationship that Mark and Gene have and, and why Gene is is so concerned about what people in Runyon are going to say and think. Okay. Well, all right. So this story, let, let me say this to, to begin with. It, it, it started from just a kernel of an idea. Actually, there's a three-story arc. There's the April story called The Flutist, uh, and then there's the July story, The Invisible World Around Them, that you're talking about, and then the October story, uh, A Fiddle in a Twilight Reel. And, and those, those three stories together grew out of this one moment uh, from my own past when, when a, 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 a friend of mine from Little League, you know, playing Little League baseball, right? Uh, he was a year or two behind me in school, um, you know, went away, disappeared uh, to college, uh, and, and then, you know, after after a few years, and I never saw him again. But I, I, you know, I heard, I heard, you know, you hear in these in the community, you hear the stories, and and so, so eventually, all I knew was that he did come back to die, right? Uh, and so, so just kind of rolling that over in my mind, uh, I, I, you know, sort of built this story arc on that, and. And with Gene Fredericks, his father, I mean, he's a local businessman. So this, this kind of, <laughs> you know, this kind of situation that the community is not really ready for, right? I mean, even though this is 1999 and AIDS has been around um, in, uh, in, in the world, you know, and very present in the world since, you know, the 1980s, uh, it hasn't really been present in... Runyon's world, in the world of Runyon, right? So, so the people don't, um, Gene is afraid that nobody will understand, nobody will um, continue to do business with him, that there will be just this sort of mass hysteria that many of us remember uh, hearing, uh, reading stories about, and that, that Carter Sickles portrayed so uh, wonderfully in The Prettiest Star. You know, this, this, this idea of, of a community uh, just sort of circling the wagons to 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 uh, protect itself from from this sort of unknown uh, horror that they that they 
they really don't know anything about uh, or, or have any, any sense of, they lose the, kind of their sense of humanity. And Gene is afraid of that. And he doesn't really know how to handle it himself, right? Uh, and so, so part of the story, the, one you're, the story you're talking about, the invisible world around them, he is, you know, he's, he's waking up on the morning after having learned this about his son. And, uh, and it just so happens that that day he has an appointment as a real estate agent to show uh, a house to an incoming faculty member from Runyon State who is going to be the new flute professor and, and who is also, uh, Gene discovers, uh, gay, right? And so, so he has... Uh, he has what I felt was a very, um, a very touching moment when he he discovers while the while um, Jubal Kincaid and his uh, partner are in this house, sort of you know uh, testing out to see what they feel about the house. Gene is out by the cars. He 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 happens to to um, to see in their car uh, some magazines that have spilled out of, of a box, and they're. In, in, a, in a few moments, he realizes that they are gay men's magazines, right? uh, and and rather than as he might have done before, you know, the day before, <laughs> before his son came home, as he he might have he might have just uh, told them, "I'm not renting anything to you," uh, but but uh, you know, overnight he has had an experience that has changed his his perspective on things, even though he doesn't have things figured out. Um, He's, he's seeing the world in a different way, and he has this moment where they are the first ones. They, Jubal Kincaid and his partner become the first two people to whom Gene, um, you know, sort of says, my son is gay. Right? So, so this first uh, admission uh, of, uh, of, of what he has learned uh, in the community is to these strangers, right, who are just moving in. Very good. Yeah, it was a powerful story and one that just just really um, had me thinking all kinds of things and 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 a lot of memories and and uh, people I know that have gone through similar circumstances. And so it was a really powerful story. We're talking with uh, Michael Cody here on Now Appalachia about his latest collection of short stories, A Twilight Reel, and also his novel Gabriel's Songbook. So, Michael, we'll come back to the stories in just a second. I, I wanted to ask you, you've written a collection of short stories, you've written a novel. Do you prefer one genre over the other as a writer, or is this something that you kind of uh, go in and out of quite frequently as you're, as you're thinking about stories and writing and, and putting those things together? Uh, right now, most of the things that I seem to be thinking about um, are, are more novel-oriented, uh, novel-directed. Uh, the story collection. I mean, it took a lot out of me uh, to to write this this collection uh, in, in a good way, uh, but uh, right, you know, it, it it didn't have me turning my head towards short story ideas uh, for a while. I've just now started. You know, I finished the collection probably two or three years ago, but you know, prior to publication. But um, uh, except for revisions, but. But I haven't really thought in terms of short stories until recently. Some ideas have begun to, to creep back in. But I think I had I had uh, tapped that well out uh, for a bit. Uh, but it's you know it's it's I see it I see the short stories as something you know uh, 
near to to my my uh, beloved uh, songwriting. You know, I still I still write songs, and I and I think the the songs had a uh, an effect on on how I was able to pull the stories together. Right, just the language and and the sort of lyric quality of of some of the some of the writing. I, at least I hope that's there. Uh, but I'm I but even with the, a Twilight Reel, I mean it. It is almost a novel of a place, I think. Uh, the more I think about it, you know, and look back on it, um, the the stretch of a year from January through December, uh, and the the different stories that it tells, you know, overall, over all twelve of those, it tells the story of this place. Right? So it's it it has a, a kind of a novel quality in itself, I, I think. Um, but the the new things that I'm that I'm working now uh, working on now are are tending to be um, sort of novel ideas. Fantastic. You have any advice for a writer who is maybe dabbling in short stories and is thinking about a collection, or kind of getting or trying to get a collection together, or in the process of getting a collection together? Any advice you'd give them on on that process, or? when they might know if they've got a collection together or some things they might want to keep in mind along those lines? I don't, I don't, that's hard to say. I mean, I knew, I knew what the collection was going to be from the beginning. And it was, for me, it was always a collection. It was, it was never this story and that story to bring together into a collection. Uh, I was actually surprised recently to look back, uh, several years to find a, a, a master's thesis that I did that I named a Twilight Reel and had four, three of the stories uh, in that, there were four stories in the thesis and three of them ended up in the collection. So I, I never didn't have the idea that this was a, a collection. So I, I don't, I'm just now beginning to think in terms of what you're saying, Elliot, the, the idea of writing this story and that story and then figuring out do these make a collection or are these just completely standalone so so all that to say i i, I don't think i have <laughs> any good advice uh, uh you know because mine was always just going to be be this this collection right um though i do i do you know feel like uh, that a lot of you know people get confused with stories uh, a lot uh, Sometimes I think uh, readers and, and also writers are, are concerned about, you know, wrapping up a short story. How do you how do you end a short story, um, which is different from I think I think from how a novel ends. Right? I mean, there's a certain there's a certain uh, certain element, rather of instead of narrative closure, for a, a short story. Very often it, it seems like there's you can get by with just sort of an emotional closure uh, as opposed to a narrative you know it doesn't it doesn't you know the it doesn't necessarily have the beginning middle and end it may have those but the end is not quite as as uh, full stop as as uh, as as many people would like but but I was I was talking to a friend recently and 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 said something along those lines about you know sort of some sort of satisfying emotional conclusion uh and and she just sort of went oh yeah that 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 works i i I'm, i like that you know and, and it seemed to 
you know, for her own thinking, her own reading, uh, it seemed to open up a window for her. Uh, and so, so I, I kind of think of think of the short stories in that way. I think that's really good advice in terms of, of the endings and, and, you know, the narrative versus the emotional closure and, and how all that works. I think that's great advice. Michael Cody, we're speaking with him on Now Appalachia about Gabriel's songbook, his novel, followed up by his latest collection of short stories, A Twilight Reel. So, Michael, I wanted to get back to one more story uh, before we uh, run out of time here, because it's another one that I loved. It's called The Wine of Astonishment. Uh-huh. And this is where, uh, kind of back to the religious theme that we were talking about earlier, um, a minister is going out on a sort of a cold winter night and uh, on his way to, to visit a parishioner, uh, he picks up a hitchhiker and then sort of all heck breaks loose after that. And, and, and I loved it because it went in a direction I, had, I did not anticipate, which I loved. So uh, what, what happens when our dear reverend picks up the hitchhiker and um, what, what does he get himself into and involved with there? Um, okay, so yeah, this, this, is, this is kind of my, you know, my, uh, my academic focus in, in, my, in my career has been on early American literature, which includes one of my favorite authors, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne. So The Wine of Astonishment is, is a little bit of my, my young Goodman Brown, I think. Uh, something like that. Um, but anyway, the, the Amos Thorne, the, the, the preacher, has to go out at night uh, and visit the sister of a parishioner. Uh, as he's driving into the, and this is January, so it's very cold um, and, uh, and very stark landscape with all the leaves gone. He, he encounters this character, his headlights hit the back of this character that initially looks like a huge individual and then disappears in, off the embankment and then climbs back up as this old shriveled man, right? And so, so, um, so Thorne picks him up uh, and uh, thinking, you know, he doesn't want to, but he says, you know, gosh, if somebody in the community finds out that I, the preacher, didn't stop uh, and, uh, and, and, and give help on such a cold night, I'm going to be really in for it with my congregation. Uh, and so he does stop and pick up the man. And, and the guy uh, appears to have some fairly nefarious... Uh, intentions uh, in relation to the to the preacher um, we would later find out that that the guy Mally uh, was a preacher uh, as well um, I think that's uh, his name um, well old man Harry. Harry is his name Mally is another character in the stories <laughs> like we were talking about earlier uh, we lose track of the of our characters names uh, so so it's uh, this old uh, Harry character, uh, who has been a preacher himself back in a in a rough um, a rough period of mountain uh, Christianity, I guess we would call it, but mountain religion, right? Uh, a, a sort of an old kind of cinder block or log cabin church um, that you you see in a lot of the hollers around around Madison County in the mountains in, in general. Uh, and so, so this guy is, is uh, he has been a preacher in very hard times in the mountains, uh, and he intends to teach uh, Amos Thorne a bit of a lesson uh, about um, 
about what his day's preaching were like and, uh, and uh, some sort of uh, attempt, it seems, to, to make the road perhaps a little easier um, <laughs> for, for Amos Thorne, though, though, uh, though it's, a, it's a really difficult situation that he finds himself in, you know, in this cabin, uh, a captive, really, uh, you know, back in the, in the dark, dark hollows of the mountains, with no, I mean, this is, he has no cell phone, he has nothing like that. So, so it's uh, his, uh, his attempt to, to get out of there with his, uh, with his mind and maybe even his soul and his body, certainly, uh, intact. Love that story. So, so neat and so unique. And again, one of those stories I did not expect it to go in that direction. And it, it, it <laughs> terrific. I loved it, loved it, loved it. So, Michael, in our final moments with you today here on the program, if anyone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about your books or about writing or anything related to that, how can they get in contact with you, first of all? And then where can they get copies of Gabriel's songbook and a Twilight Reel? Okay. Um, the, uh, my, I have a website, just michaelamoscody.com, uh, where you can go and learn about the, the books. Uh, I've got some, uh, some blog posts that I'm attempting to uh, to keep up to date when the semester starts I sort of lose time to, to keep that as as fresh as I want it but uh, but there is the the blog and information about the books and about me um, my email uh, is there Michael Amos Cody at gmail.com uh, of course people can get in touch with me here at the University at East Tennessee State uh, in the Department of Literature and Language uh, in the College of Arts and Sciences. Uh, the books, um, Gabriel's Songbook probably is, is going to be only available on online sources, uh, I think, I don't, I don't know. Uh, maybe the publisher may ha still have some, but, they, but it's still available on, uh, you know, Bookshop and, and uh, Amazon uh, and some of those sources. Twilight Reel, uh, just a couple of months old now, is is in some shops. If you're in the mountains, um, you can find it at uh, I think Malaprops in Asheville and City Lights in Silva, and and, um, and the Red Spotted Newt uh, and Hazard, I think, right? Um, and uh, and of course, then on all the online uh, venues as well. We've been delighted to have on the program today author Michael Cody. He is the author of the novel Gabriel's Songbook and also the most recent collection of short stories, his most recent collection of short stories, A Twilight Reel. And I think uh, you will really enjoy uh, both of these books because not only uh, do you get a, a variety of, of great characters uh, that you were going to feel deeply and, and, and broadly intimate with, uh, by the time that the, you finish the novel and the story, but you've got just such an abundance of really unique original people that occupy Runyon's town and everything that you would expect uh, in an Appalachian community. And everybody is is representing all walks of life. It's it, it's a great collection of stories. It's a terrific novel, Michael. Uh, congratulations on both of them. We're so glad to have you on the program. And uh, as you get that next project together, that's kind of uh, percolating in your mind, as you get that published, we'd love to have you back on the program to talk about it. So thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Elliot. It's a pleasure.
We want to take a moment as we finish up uh, this edition of Now Appalachia to give a special shout out and thanks to the executive producer of our program. Her name is Pam Stack. We appreciate all the support that she provides uh, getting these podcasts on the air and making them possible for you each and every time here on Now Appalachia. And we also need to remind you this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. That is going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program, and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.